please, to Colossians chapter 1. This morning as we spend time in the book, the letter of Colossians, oh my, what a book we are in. John Kitchen in his commentary says this about this letter. He says, Colossians provides us with an unparalleled portrait of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For in Colossians, we are brought to fresh and breathtaking vistas of Him who is our life. What a treat then to be in a book where we are being beheld, we are beholding the glories of Jesus and being taken to fresh and breathtaking vistas of who He is. In the opening eight verses of this book, the Apostle Paul, who's the author, he celebrates the miracle of this church's existence by really taking them on a trip down memory lane. He spends time just reminding them of how they started, how they were planted through Epaphras and all that the Lord did in their midst. And then from verse 9 through 14, he begins to pray for them, praying that they'll understand in greater detail what the Lord Jesus has done for them, and that as they understand, they would just grow in heart to want to follow him with all their heart and to live in a manner worthy of the calling that they've received. And then it's from verse 15 onwards that the Apostle Paul begins to point them to new and fresh and breathtaking vistas of him who is our life. One commentator actually says that these verses are among the closely reasoned presentations of the supremacy of Christ anywhere in the Bible. And when commentators are slowing us down to help us see, pay attention here, we need to be paying attention. And so we're going to look at just four verses today, Colossians 1. Verses 15 through to the end of verse 18, and this is the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Let's pray. Lord, what an honor it is to be around your word today. Lord, I pray that what will be left from this message is not my voice. I pray that what will be left from this message is your voice. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you placard the glory, glories of Jesus Christ before our eyes this morning? Would we marvel? Would we just stop and stare and stand in awe once again at who you are in your majesty? And in your supremacy and in your preeminence, Lord, we love you. Show us you. Help us to see you afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, over a hundred years ago now, in 1893, the world-famous World Columbian Exhibition was held in Chicago. And Kent Hughes says this about the event. He said, some 21 million people an astronomical number of people, especially in those pre-automobile days, visited the exhibits. America, and particularly Chicago, which had risen phoenix-like from the Great Fire of 1873, 
was showing off to the rest of the world. And the show was good. Among the features of the Colombian Exposition was the World Parliament of Religions, in which representatives of the world's religions met to share their best points and perhaps come up with a new world religion. D.L. Moody saw this as a great chance for evangelism. Moody commissioned evangelists and assigned them to preaching posts throughout the city. He used churches and rented theaters. He even rented a circus tent to preach the word. Moody's friends wanted him to attack the Parliament of Religions, but he refused, saying, I'm going to make Jesus Christ so attractive that men will want to turn to him. D.L. Moody knew that preaching Christ preeminent, the peerless, supreme, all-sufficient Christ clearly presented would do the job. And indeed, it did. The Chicago campaign of 1893 is considered to be the greatest evangelistic work of Moody's celebrated life as thousands came to Christ. Oh, what a day that would have been to behold as he's preaching the glories of the gospel, to see thousands coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Moody's tactic at that event was simple. He didn't want to attack the world religions. He just wanted to placard before their eyes the glories of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, supreme and preeminent. It was such a wonderful tactic and approach, but that approach did not originate with Mr. Moody. It originated with the apostles themselves. As you read the letters... The apostles are indeed doing a wonderful job of preaching Christ and Him crucified, of revealing Christ in all His preeminence and supremacy. And that is exactly what the apostle Paul is doing right here in this text as well. So to give you a bit of background, the false teachers in Colossae had their own version of the Parliament of Religions. See, there was a church in Colossae that had been planted by Epaphras. Epaphras was a young man. He got saved, likely, um, sometime earlier in Ephesus. Um, Colossae is about 80 miles inland from Ephesus. And Epaphras has been preaching. He's been proclaiming the gospel. A church has been built, but then false teachers have come in. And these false teachers that have come into this church have believed and started to preach that Jesus is nothing more than a rung on a ladder to God. And so he's good, he's a great place to start, he's one of the gang, but he is definitely not the destination, and he is certainly not the way, the truth, and the life. He's simply one of thousands of ways to get right with God. So Epaphras, as their lead pastor, realizes, I need help. I need to figure out what to say to my church. And so he finds his friend, the Apostle Paul, who at the time is in chains in Rome. He arrives in Rome. He speaks to the Apostle Paul. He explains what is taking place. This letter is Paul's response. Speaking to them about the preeminence of Christ. Speaking to them about the truth. What we have here, quite simply, is a few verses that help us see the supremacy of Christ in all things. And accordingly, what a passage it is. So I have three points this morning. Number one, the supremacy of Christ in personhood. Number two, the supremacy of Christ in creation. And then number three, the supremacy of Christ in the church. But really just one hope. I hope we're all freshly amazed with Jesus today. 
I pray that we would all return to like six-year-olds this morning as if to look at Jesus for the first time and just see and marvel at who he really is. And I pray that that effect on our hearts would cause us to worship him all the more because he's worthy of that, isn't he? He's worthy of our affection and our praise. So I want to show you Christ this morning. Three things then that I believe this text preaches to us about the supremacy of Christ. Three things about his personal supremacy. And here's the first. Number one, the supremacy of Christ in personhood. In who he is. Look with me at the opening section of verse 15. He reads, He is the image of the invisible God. I mean, that is a dramatic statement. Those opening words of verse 15 describing Christ as the image of the invisible God are deliberately provocative, they are deliberately bold, and they are deliberately loud. Remember, he is responding to a church that no longer thinks that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. He's just a rung on a ladder. And he's saying, oh, no, he's not. He is the image of the invisible God. He is not just a rung on the ladder. He is the destination. In him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. To see Christ is to see God himself. He is not just a rung on a ladder. He is the destination. You see, all the way through the Old Testament, we are taught, are we not, that God is invisible. You can't see God. He is invisible by very nature. And yet in the Gospel of John, in the opening chapter, in chapter 1, verse 18, which begins by affirming and telling us that no one has ever seen God, goes on in verse 18 to say, The only God who is at the Father's side, He, Jesus, has made Him known. How has He made Him known? Well, He has made Him known by being the image of the invisible God. For in Him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. God has incarnated Himself. He has clothed Himself with frail humanity. Jesus is God. And it's one of the beautiful things that we see Jesus claiming about himself. In Mark chapter 9, verse 37, Jesus himself says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not just me, but him who sent me. He's making it clear that through me, And me alone, you get to God, and to receive me is to receive God. Why? Because I am He. I am the second person of the Trinity. In John 14, verse 9, he makes it even more explicit. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Just as we read in Hebrews 1, verse 3, He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I love that. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is the image of God, the exact imprint, the exact representative. He's not a rung on a ladder. He is the destination because he is God. You know, it's so easy, I think, to just take that for granted and hear that and go, oh, we get that. It's so, it's so easy. And yet, my friends, I want you to know, it is so easy, I think, to see God in the Old Testament and Christ as two different things, two different personalities almost. It's 
So I love Jesus, but this God of the Old Testament, I don't know, he sounds quite scary. Rather than understanding, he's the same. If you really want to know how great God is, if you want to know how merciful God is and how loving God is and how gracious God is, then look at Christ. If you really want to know how pure God is, how holy he is, how strong he is, then look to Jesus. If you want to see how tender God is in his majesty, how gentle he is in his grace, how compassionate he is in his heart, then look at Jesus. For Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. You know, just recently as a church family in Sydney, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. And just a few months ago, I got to preach on the Transfiguration. And it's just another one of those moments in history that just take your breath away. As Peter and James and John spend time with him, and then all of a sudden they look away and they look back, and there he is, in some ways showing who he really is. As his face radiates bright light, his clothes turn to white, they are dazzled and amazed. And as is, you know, typical of the disciples, oh, we should do something. I don't know, let's build, let's build them a house or something. I know, it's just ridiculous. But Jesus right there before them is showing them, he's pulling back who he really is. He is God. That's what Paul's telling us here. Telling us here. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The very first thing we see in this text is the supremacy of Christ in personhood. But that's not all. Number two. We also see the supremacy of Christ in creation. Look again at verse 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And that very first opening section, Paul calls Christ the firstborn of all creation. And that is a phrase that I'm sure you've been wonderfully taught, but it can be so easily misunderstood. It can be easily misunderstood that does that mean, if he's the firstborn of all creation, does that mean origin, that he was in some way born? And what Paul wants to help us see here is no, firstborn doesn't mean origin at all. It is not a reference to origin. It is a reference to rank. His position as preeminent, as supreme over all things. In John chapter 1, verse 1, he addresses origin. We read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's incredible. He goes on to explain that the Word is Christ. The Word is Jesus himself. In the beginning was Christ, and Christ was with God, and Christ was God. He was never made. He was never created. He always has been. He's been there from the very beginning as the second person of the Trinity. You know, this is something 4th century Orionism never understood. It's something Jehovah's Witnesses still don't understand. Thinking that he's just been created. He's like our God. No, he isn't our God. He is God. The image of the invisible God in his fullness. It's to do with rank. We see it represented in Psalm 89. 
verses 26 through 27. We see this rank issue there. It says, He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of all the kings of the earth. You see it playing out in that very, this rank, this Messiah that is going to come. One that will be given all the rights and all the honor and all the authority and all the supremacy over all things. Christ is supreme over all. And then what he's explaining to us here is part of that is that Christ is supreme in all creation. And then he unpacks that, and I love it. He explains first and foremost that Christ is supreme in all of creation. Firstly, because he's the founder of all creation. He made it all. In verse 16, we read, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities, all things were created through him. Listen, everything. Everything that has ever been made has been made through Jesus Christ. He is the creator of all things. It's one of the beautiful things as you travel the world and see so many different things. You realize, well, he made that, and he made that, and he made that, and he made that. It has all been breathed out by the power of his mighty word. In Isaiah 40, then, we read, Who has measured the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand? The answer to that question is Jesus has. Jesus can do those things. He is the one who can measure the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. You know, one of the things about traveling is you do see a lot of water. And whenever I come to the United States, often I'm traveling from Sydney to L.A. So what that means is you take off in Sydney, and within about a minute, you're over the Pacific Ocean. And then I travel for 14 and a half hours over the ocean, and about two minutes before you land in L.A., you start to come out of the ocean and land in L.A. For 14 and a half hours, you're traveling over one of the great seas of the earth. Jesus can measure all that in the hollow of his hand. Such is his majesty and supremacy and preeminence. Who can mark off the heavens with the breadth of his hand? Jesus can. You know, we can't do that in our humanity, can we? All the people ever say, people much smarter than me, they just say, well, you know what the known universe is about this far? And they call it the known universe because we haven't built a telescope big enough yet to see how far it really is. But Jesus can say, hey, listen, I can measure that. I can measure that with the palm of my hand. Jesus himself is the one who can enclose all the dust of the earth in a measure and weigh the mountains on scales and the hills in a balance. Last time I went to Nepal... I was hanging with Brother Barnabas, and he took me to a coffee shop, and he's like, you know what, we'll just go up on this hill, and you might see some things later on. I'm like, sweet, I'm all up for seeing things. So we go in this coffee shop, and it's just cloudy everywhere. You can't really see anything. But then as the sun starts to come up and things start to change, you start to see the peaks of the Himalayas. And he's like, if we just kept walking that way, we'd get to Everest. You should come with me sometime. I said, Barnabas, I will never come with you. I get tired after driving 50 miles. I don't want to walk anywhere. But it was a breathtaking scene just to be able to see these, these peaks of these great mountains. And yet we learn in God's word that it is Jesus alone who can weigh the mountains and the scales and hills in a balance. Such is his supremacy and might. Before Christ, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. Listen, Christ is the founder of all creation. And he's the founder of all creation, Paul tells us, both the visible and the invisible. 
See, in the scriptures and in Jewish literature, there's these four things revealed all the time. So he always talks in terms of thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. They're always mentioned as a four, and they, they refer to four classes of angelic powers, with the last two referring to the highest orders of the angelic realm. Well, here's the point. These false teachers that were involved in this church are teaching we need to worship angels because they're a way to God. So we should worship angels. You know, we should sing to the angels. We should make offerings to the angels. And Paul is saying, are you kidding me? He is the maker of both the visible and the invisible. We don't worship the angels. We worship the creator of all. We worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. We worship the one who was and is and is to come. We worship the one who made all things. He is the founder of it all. Nothing in this universe has been made outside the power of his word and his mind. But that's not all. Christ isn't just the founder of all creation. He's also the goal of all creation. Pay attention again to verse 16. He says, all things were created through him and for him. He not only created it, he's the goal of it all. He's where it all goes. Peter O'Brien, a fellow Australian, says it this way. He says, this is a stunning statement. Paul's teaching about Christ as the goal of all creation finds no parallel in Jewish wisdom literature, nor in any of the rest of Jewish materials for that matter. For everything began with him and will end with him. All things sprang forth at his command, and all things will return to him at his command. For he is the beginning and he is the end, the Alpha and Omega, and one day everything will give him glory. What a day that will be when we worship him from every tribe and language and nation. On that day when he returns, even the trees of the field will clap their hands. Everything will stand in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything will give him praise. It's one of the beautiful scenes of, of, in the Gospel of John where Jesus has been arrested. It's often missed, but when Jesus is being arrested outside the Garden of Gethsemane, they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am. Ego me. It's the same phrase that's used many, many years earlier from the burning bush. I am. And when he says, ego me, when he says, I am, it says that the entire battalion at that point stepped back and fell to their knees. What's that all about? They weren't worshippers of him. It's because they were in the midst of greatness in that moment. And as he declared to them who he is, no one could stand before him. Every knee will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ himself because everything in creation is ultimately going to him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It's all going to go back to the Lord. He is the creator of all things. And he is the goal of all creation. And then Paul tells us incredibly in verse 17, He's the sustainer of it as well. It says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What a staggering statement. See, we can in our humanity just get a bit big for our boots, as we'd say in Australia sometimes, you know. You think, oh, I think I'm quite special. Yeah, maybe not. Are you thinking about your heart ticking right now? I don't reckon. 
are you working hard on making your lungs go in and out? Eh, no. You working on your digestive system right now? Eh, no. It's the Lord. He's the only one who sustains it all. He tells us in this word that he is before all things. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And he is the stainer of all things in between. He sustains all things. He holds all things together. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, we read, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The only reason your heart is still ticking in this moment is because he is ordaining it to still keep going. He is the one who is the sustainer of all things. He holds the whole world in his hands. And that just doesn't mean on a macro level, that means on a micro level as well. When I was studying for this message, I actually got given an article on atoms. Now, I'm not given to physics, but I did on this occasion read this article on atoms, and it was fascinating. Realizing that atoms are held together by protons and neutrons and electrons, and when you look at them, they're like a whole solar system just by themselves. And atoms are the building blocks of all of life. But the point of the article was that although these things are so complex and amazing, and science does to a degree understand how these work, what science doesn't understand yet is what stops the whole things from imploding. And I thought, you know what, I ain't no scientist. I know why they're not imploding. Because Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. That's why it's not imploding. That's why your seat in this moment isn't giving way. That's why the roof isn't falling in. Because he is upholding all things by the power of his might. John Kitchen says it this way. He says, we owe both our existence and our continuance to Christ. Life as we know it, including all the so-called laws of nature is dependent upon the ongoing, ever-present, continuous command of Christ, which holds all the elements of the universe together in an ordered reality. On the macro scale, this includes the orbits of the planets around the stars. And on the micro scale, this includes the dynamic powers that hold atoms and their subatomic particles in whirling, consistent wholeness. Christ, listen, Christ is the glue that holds all things together. He is the tuning fork to which all created reality adjusts and conforms. He is the principle of cohesion in all the universe. I mean, listen, what a faith-building and comforting reality this is, don't you think? He is the upholder of all things. Listen, this is Jesus. He's the one who died in your place. He is the one who came after you on the greatest rescue mission ever told. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were at enmity with God, uninterested in Him. And yet He came after you on the greatest rescue mission ever told and died in your place. He saved you by His amazing grace. Even your faith was a gift from Him. And then through faith, He forgave you and redeemed you and adopted you into His very family. You're not a number to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a name. You're a child. And this same king is the one who breathed out the stars and named them and numbered them and sustains them so that not one is missing. If he does that for the stars, how much more is he going to do it for you? Personally. Because you're not a number. You're a name. He's sustaining you. 
Such is his supremacy. Such is his wonder before all things. Christ is supreme not only in his person, but he's also supreme in creation. And the Apostle Paul, to help us see just how personal that is, he has one final thing for us in these verses. Number three, the supremacy of Christ in the church. Look with me at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. My friends, he is not just supreme and head over all creation. He's not only the creator and goal and sustainer of all. No, he is also head over the church. And my friends, that means you. It means you right here, right now. He is in grace and supremacy and preeminence, the head over Redemption Hill Church. He is the one who is ultimately leading you. However good John and Aaron are, They are nothing compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the true senior pastor of this local church. He is head over all. That means you corporately. You know, the church really is the dearest place on earth, is it not? The church is an incredible thing. The church is a family. It's a place where brothers and sisters come together from different tribes and languages and nation and spend time and get time together. We don't just go around calling each other bro. We actually understand we are, bro. We are brothers and sisters before the Lord. We are joined by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're tight and we're family. You know, one of the joys but difficulties sometimes of moving to Australia is we live on the other side of the planet from our biological family. And that's not always easy. You miss the weddings, you miss the birthdays, you miss everything. But as the kids have got older, it's been a joy to help them understand, you know what, where are your grandparents and where are your aunties and uncles and where are your brothers and sisters? They're right there. This is our family. These are our people. In Australia, this is our family. This is where we belong. The church is a dearest place on earth because it is a family by His grace. It's also a bride, is it not? The bride of Christ that Jesus Christ died for. It is also a body where we have hands and feet and different gifts and abilities that we use. And the body builds itself up in love. But no part of the body is the head. The head is Jesus Christ. He is the leader. He is the supreme one of all. So when we are reading here that he is the head of the church, that has a corporate element to it, no doubt. But it also has a personal element to it as part of the church. He's preeminent in your life. He's supreme over you. And what a happy reality that is. You see, in life, when we're just being honest, there are many things that can make us anxious and fearful at different times. Whoever we are and whatever our personality is like, in our humanity, we get anxious about things. And we get fearful about things. I think that can happen corporately sometimes. You know, when COVID hit in Australia, um, it was a different experience. We were locked in for most of the time. And so there was a whole set where we were locked in for four months. The only thing you're allowed to do was go shopping. I did a lot of shopping in that time (laughs) on a daily basis. Even food shopping. I was like, my love, just give me one thing at a time. I'll go get them. I just had to get out. But it was hard because we couldn't gather like this. It was illegal to do so. You weren't even allowed to gather in groups more than two. 
So you weren't able to spend time with the church. And you're aware, Lord, how's this going to pan out? How are we going to go with this? How are we going to make it as a local church as time is going on? You can get fearful about those things. And then there's buildings. I know you guys are in the hunt for land. It was actually the story of how the Lord provided for you that caused us to start a building fund. So you talk about how you influence people. And it was the story of you. And we're looking for a big donor as well. So if anybody wants to give that. Um, just want to advertise that. Just again. But you can, right? You can. And even for you guys, you start looking at land and you realize, oh, it's quite expensive. And how are we going to pull this off? We started looking at land in Sydney. And we were aware that the only way we would get a building big enough for us to be in, we would need at least 20 to $30 million. Sydney's an expensive place. And you can just look at a church similar size to this. And you think, how on earth are we going to do it? So we're going to be in a school like for the rest of our lives. And you can get anxious. Corporate anxiety. And then there's personal anxiety, is there not? You go to the hospital because you're not feeling quite right. And you think it'll probably be okay. You assure yourself it'll be okay. But then the doctor gives you news that you hadn't foreseen. And you feel fearful. Or the girl you want to marry. You love her. She doesn't love you. And you're getting older and you think, I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. And it causes you to actually get anxious. How's this going to play out? I, I don't want to be single for the rest of my life. I, this isn't what I have planned for my life. Or the job that you've enjoyed for years. and It looks like it's beginning to come to an end. But you love that job and you're not trained in many other things. So what are we going to do? Times are hard. Inflation is up. There are many things in life, when we're honest, that we can get anxious and fearful about. But here's the good news that this text teaches us. This text teaches us that there is always great hope for all of our tomorrows. Because Jesus Christ is head of the church. He is the one who is supreme over all things. He's the one that spins the galaxies. He's the one who sustains all things. He's the one that knows all things. And he is intimately involved in the life of your church and the life of you individually. You're not a number. You're a name. What a happy reality this is. So there is always great hope for all of our tomorrows. Because he's the one leading us forward. So my friends, I want to encourage you. Behold your Christ. And behold your God. And behold your King. This is him. This is the one we worship. This is the one who emboldens us to live for him. This is the one, as we gaze at him, that should cause our hearts to want to sing. Not because somebody's telling us we have to, but because we can't help ourselves. And this is the one who should give us confidence to live all our lives flat out for him, knowing that there will be a very long rest in heaven when we get there. He's worthy of all our praise and all of our lives. Behold your Christ in his supremacy. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for the profound view we get when we slow down enough to look at you. Lord, thank you that this morning we got to just stop and stare like a small child and not move on, but just gaze at you. And Lord, as we gaze at you, we are amazed by what we see. Oh my, what a Savior. What a King. What a Christ you are. 
Lord, I pray for each one of us in the room. Lord, I pray that in heart we would never move on from this view. But only ever increasingly into a more amazed understanding of what it all means. For you are worthy of our gaze. You are worthy of our praise. Lord, thank you for all that you truly are. In Jesus' name, amen.